Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Heard from a number of people over the weekend about how much they appreciated the high quality of the content that we had on our website at In The Plain Dealer. Always appreciate getting comments like that to mix in with all the people that are condemning me for what I write in letter from the editor. It's today from Ohio. <laughs> I'm battling a cold. Bear with me. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Let's get to some of those good stories. Is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose playing politics with his office and harming Ohio to build favor with MAGA Republicans as he prepares to run for the U.S. Senate? Why did he abandon a multi-state voting fraud cooperative that his office helped manage and upon which he has heaped praise? Lisa. This is a real head-scratcher, but we've seen Frank LaRose flip-flop many times since the pandemic. The Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC, is a nonprofit data-sharing group that helps states keep their voter rolls current. Right now, after Ohio leaves, because that's what Frank LaRose wants, there will be 27 states and, and Washington, D.C. still in ERIC. Now, LaRose previously praised ERIC as recently as last month. He said it was, quote, one of the best tools we have to maintain the accuracy of our voter rolls, and his own elections director, Mandy Grangine, chaired Eric last year. But in a letter on March 17th, he said that Ohio is leaving because he feels the group is becoming more partisan to Democrats, and they also did not accept his proposal to relax rules about sending postcards to eligible unregistered voters. They did accept another proposal of LaRose's to eliminate non-voting members from Eric, or ex officio members. Eric co-founder David Becker says it's really odd to hear that states are criticizing an organization that they essentially run. And he says Ohio clearly knows that data is not shared inappropriately through Eric. But uh, LaRose says he's given up on trying to save Eric. He says they're rapidly diminishing returns. And he said that they'll have to consider state-specific list exchanges as an alternative to Eric. This is one of those bizarre things. I think it's pretty clear this is politics. He has played this game where he defends Ohio's election system while trying to sow doubts about the election system nationally. This has become a thing for MAGA states to drop out of. But this would be like a police department dropping out of the FBI database. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be in a in a organization that shares data about fraud. It makes no sense other than to get some credit with the MAGA Republicans for taking a stand. 
Yeah, and there are conspiracy theories running amongst the MAGA group that says that liberals are using Eric to rig elections. And, you know, it's it's common knowledge or a rumor or whatever that Frank LaRose is considering running against Sherrod Brown for U.S. Senate. So maybe he's just setting the table to, you know, appeal to his base. They're all so afraid to to do the right thing and stand up. It's amazing to me how many times they cave to this ridiculous pressure. The, the liberals are using Eric to, to rig elections. It's preposterous, and he knows that. And despite knowing that, he takes this hypocritical step. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I don't think I can blame Ohio's shady Public Utilities Commission for this. Laura, why are electricity rates just about doubling for many Ohioans in a few months? Yeah, sorry. You cannot blame Puko for this. I think you have to blame the market. We talked at length a while back about customers getting kicked off of NOPEC because their prices jumped. And this is like the reverse of that, because now months after First Energy bought electricity at a high price at auction, their customers are going to feel that price hike. So the base price for customers in First Energy territories will be 10.2 cents per kilowatt hour. That is up 93% from the 5.3 cents per kilowatt hours that they're currently paying. That's Ohio Edison, the illuminating company, a whole swath of Northeast Ohio. They're going to first see this price increase in June. It'll last until May of 2024, but only the customers who are on the standard service offer offer from the utility. That's called the price to compare on electricity bills. I got to give a hats off to Sean um, McDonald, who wrote this story and a follow-up about how you can actually not get the price hike. This is complicated stuff, and I don't blame people for being confused about how to get the best price for their electric com- electricity. But the good news is if you go back on NOPEC, and you should be getting a mailer soon, um, you won't see this price hike. Yeah, I, I was out of NOPEC, so I'm worried I'm not going to get the postcard. So just when I want to be in, I'm out. So I'll have to figure it out. I'm one of those that's going to get walloped by that price increase. That is a big price increase. So Yeah, but remember how big of a deal they made about NOPEC dropping people because their price increased and they were trying to get them basically kicked, like pr- eliminated, that they could do natural gas, but they couldn't do electricity anymore. And NOPEC did the right thing. It saved its people money. And now they're telling you how to save it again. So you're going to get 6.5 cents per kilowatt hour for six months starting in June if you're a NOPEC customer. Yeah. And you've got to set up because it starts with your monthly billing cycle. The recommendation is you get switched over in May, no, a little yes. later than May. All right, good stories by Sean McDonald. Both of them are on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This one took a while to put together because data is not readily available. Do we finally have a clear idea on how much train traffic is going through Cuyahoga County? It's a question made relevant by what happened in East Palestine. And Layla, holy moly, it's way more than I thought. Yeah, Pete Pete Krause did this analysis, and I, I know from the newsroom discussion around it that he had a heck of a time getting answers. And, and it shouldn't be this difficult, but it is. So what we know is that Norfolk Southern and CSX are the major railroads in Northeast Ohio and across the state. They account for uh, just under 3,700 of the 5,100 or so miles of track operated by 43 freight railroads in Ohio. 38 of the railroads are short lines that connect the larger railroads with specific industries. The most heavily traveled Norfolk Southern line around here 
passes through Olmsted Falls and Berea before it heads northeast to downtown Cleveland. And another line runs, runs closer to Lake Erie. It passes through Rocky River and Lakewood. East of the Cuyahoga River, Norfolk's southern tracks continue toward Buffalo, and then they veer southeast through Bedford and on to Pittsburgh. So a former railroad official who has served on Cuyahoga County's local emergency planning committee told Pete that the standard is about one train an hour each way for both railroads, or, or close to about 100 total on a typical day. But the Federal Rail Administration gave Pete the, the best data on the average daily rail crossings to draw some conclusions. It's not perfect because there are a number of other factors that, that you know, self-reporting and things like that that could skew the numbers. But he found that one of the busiest spots is Olmsted Falls, where one set of reports for Norfolk Southern and CSX add up to 77 a day between the two railroads. The FRA inventory shows multiple Norfolk Southern rail crossings in Olmsted Falls in 2022, averaging 22 trains during the day and 24 at night for a 24-hour total of 46. And in Brook Park, they saw an average of 55 Norfolk Southern trains each day at two crossings in 2020. On the more northern route, Norfolk Southern trains at several crossings in Lakewood and the west side of Cleveland in 2020 tallied three during the day and one at night, so far less there. Uh, Multiple crossings on the east side of the city each had 12 trains. As for CSX in 2022, they saw 16 trains during the day and 15 at night, total 31 at at a rail crossing in, in Olmsted Falls and 16 and 13 at each of two crossings in Brook Park. All right. So the the length of these trains can be more than a mile. Oh, so if you've yeah. got 55 trains going through one place, that's 55 miles of train it's rolling astounding. through in a day. And they're loaded with dangerous stuff. I love the, uh, the abbreviation. What was it? FKA? Um, it, it was just like it was a miscellaneous was the biggest category, yeah. but it's loaded with dangerous stuff. On the other hand, you, you have to think, knowing this now, that the railroads have a pretty good safety record because that's a lot of trains going through without any incident for pretty much our entire time here. I Yes, I, I hope that's not like, you know, when you're living on the super volcano and you're hoping for the big one, you know, won't won't come soon. But uh, because don't we know that there are, you know, a thousand derailments across the country every year or something wild like that? I mean, that I'm actually terrified now to think about this. I mean, the average <laughs> the average freight train in the eastern United States is, is 75 cars long, but the derailed East Palestine train was twice that long. It was 1.7 miles long for a train you know and and other train derailments were even longer than that so yeah the increasing length of trains and the hazardous chemicals on board are at the center of that hot debate well i'm sure a lot of people spent time with this story because pete did a wonderful job it's very conversational approach trying to get it in and also explaining why it's so hard and like you said it shouldn't be this hard we ought to be more transparent about this kind of thing yeah but how transparent do you want to be about hazardous materials well we're gonna have you know six trains of polyvinyl chloride going through cleveland at x time i mean that's like a terrorist's you know dream but don't you think that information should at least be available to public safety officials Oh, absolutely i i do but i you know i think you have to there is a national security issue here 
The story did say that the the local firefighters and emergency responders were given a complete inventory of what had gone through Cleveland in the past year, but it was for them only, not for public dissemination. That's different than being told as a fire department, hey, at noon today, six cars yeah. of vinyl chloride mm-hmm. are coming through. So what good is there. it to know what's been through in the past year? <laughs> we need to know what comes through you know, on a daily basis. The public safety should know that. Although it's at least... At least we know now. I mean, it, it is eye-opening how much is going through here. I, I knew it was a lot, but I had no idea. So way, way to go, Pete Krause. That was a lot yeah, of work. Yeah, a great story. And you did a really nice job putting it together. It's Today in Ohio. Why isn't the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cleveland prosecuting what are clearly federal cases investigated by the FBI, leaving them to be handled by the Cuyahoga County prosecutor instead? Lisa, we've been wondering about this since the East Cleveland cases started, but those aren't the only ones. Well, we talked to two uh, former U.S. attorneys, former Ohio U.S. attorney for the Southern District, David DeVillers, and also Daniel Richmond, who was a former New York U.S. attorney, but now teaches at Columbia Law School. And they both kind of said the same thing. They said that the issue here the big issue is the lack of a Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney in Cleveland. We haven't had one since January 2021 when Justin Herdman resigned right after Biden's election. It's currently being run by first assistant U.S. attorney Michelle Bapler. Uh, We did have a Senate-confirmed nominee, Marissa Darden, who withdrew before taking office after her attendance at a party thrown by a corrupt DEA agent. Uh, This is the longest vacancy in the Cleveland office's history of 160 years. But yeah, DeViller said that a Senate-confirmed attorney has clout in pushing for cases, and they have more standing with the Department of Justice on choosing, you know, to prosecute civil rights cases. And he said having a Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney would be crucial in deciding to prosecute East Cleveland police officers charged with brutality, bribery, and theft. So there are two big cases normally that would go to federal court that are now being brought to the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. The first one I mentioned, the East Cleveland indictments of 16 current and former officers in a two-year FBI investigation. The other one is cryptocurrency kiosks. It was a multi-state investigation by the Secret Service, you know, involving 36 states, $3.5 million was scammed from customers. And so these cases may be tried in uh, Cuyahoga Common Police Court. Yeah, the, the crypto case, when that broke and Mike O'Malley, the county prosecutor, was handling it, and it is, it's multi-state, it made no sense. This was this was complete federal investigation. It should be in federal court. It, it doesn't fit the county prosecutor's office at all, but if the feds won't prosecute it, at least the, the county will. On the East Cleveland, we've seen plenty of federal charges in mm-hmm. cases like the exist in East Cleveland. I don't understand why the interim wouldn't do her job. I mean, okay, you're interim, but these are clearly federal cases. The FBI investigated them. They brought them to you. Why haven't you done anything with them? It's a cheap excuse to say, well, we don't have a a sworn in person when it's so clearly should be in federal court. 
But we have two experts saying that a Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney would probably help them push it over line because apparently they have to decide what cases they're going to take to court. So having a Senate-confirmed attorney may help them, you know, I don't know. You have a point, though. But there is a trend of lower federal prosecutions in northern Ohio. We had 926 cases charged by the feds in September 21 to 22, but that's down 24.5% percent and three times the national decrease of 8%. So we're seeing fewer federal prosecutions anyway. Something wrong with this picture. It's a good story by Adam Faris. It's on cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Carjacking cases boomed in recent years, presenting investigators with some challenges in bringing the criminals to justice. Laura, in the story that I heard more praise from than anything else over the weekend, John Tucker explained how they do it. Yeah, I was absolutely gleeful when I first read this story last week about how well-written it is. And John's relatively new to our newsroom. He's originally, well, he's from New York. And it's a reminder of how an outside perspective can be really fresh and insightful. My favorite line of the week is that he compares Cuyahoga County to Rhode Island, that the county is bigger in both size and population. And I've lived in Northeast Ohio for the vast majority of my life and never heard that comparison before. So it really makes you think. But he uses focuses on one carjacking case, which is down the street from my house, to illustrate how police departments throughout Northeast Ohio are working together to solve crimes, especially ones as random and violent as carjacking. And these are terrifying. One minute you're putting gas in your car, the next you're fearing for your life. And they're so random that it, it, it wouldn't be happening all the time in your town. So you need to talk to other departments. So this crime strategies unit, which they refer to as a CSU, links all these departments throughout Northeast Ohio so that they can basically pinpoint similar crimes and work together to solve them. Well, and you said it was just one case. It was one investigation, but there were multiple carjackings because that's what they, they looked for patterns. And one of the telling details was in two cases in different suburbs, the carjackers used the butt of a rifle to hit somebody, which they thought, okay, that's an unusual one, uh, and started going after it. And piece by piece, they got it. They were really, they talked to John about how driven they were to solve this because of the pain suffered by the victims. Right. So they had this wide investigation that they wouldn't have been able to do without this unit. And they ended up indicting three men under Ohio's version of the Racketeer Influence and Corruption Acts, or RICO. And it alleges this pattern of corruption. And it was originally designed to go after the mob, but they were talking about six carjackings in four cities in a two-day span. And these... It's hard to comprehend. They steal a car one place, they, they drive it to another place, they, they leave the car there and they steal another car. And the randomness, I think, is what makes this so difficult and so terrifying. And I did not know this, that carjacking is not defined by Ohio statutes. It's classified as aggravated robbery, 
grand theft motor vehicle, or most likely both. So it's not just like one crime you can go through and try to match up. So they they started marking the ones that had all of both of those crimes in them and started looking at those. And I didn't, I mean, 66 prosecutions of carjackings last year, 75% occurred in Cleveland. Juveniles made up half of the defendants. 90% were committed with a gun. And that's way higher than the national rate of 38%. It was interesting when they had to resolve conflicts. They thought a couple of carjackings were related, but the person came in one model of car in one and a different model of car in the other. And when they resolved it, they realized that's because they had carjacked somebody else and stolen the other car. And so that's why they were driving it. The the thing I don't understand what one of the cars, when it was recovered, it was no longer operable. And I don't get that. I mean, if you're stealing the car because you need the transportation or the joyride, why is it being destroyed in the process if they just abandoned the car somewhere that people could get it back but not, not the there's case. a lot i don't understand about the motivation and mentality in the carjacking but you know you sent us a note this morning about the terrifying nature of these crimes and how people deal with the trauma i mean one of these there were two women um hours before the the rocky river carjacking so they were 64 and 73 on the east side the gunmen stole their crv and they felt the gun touch their nose like can you can you imagine i mean it, it's just terrifying yeah we want to get at that then how long that trauma stays with somebody you mentioned that one of these was near your home yeah. did it change the way you feel as you're pumping gas now did you change any habits going to stations in more crowded areas or anything i i haven't pumped gas since then but you know i read this story and i went over to john because it's not in john's story exactly where this is and i was like tell me which gas station this is in rocky river and i was guessing it was one right by the highway because that would make more sense right you just get off the highway and go to the first gas station you see but the gas station's actually like in a very busy like populated area like across from a target and next to a dry cleaner and a walgreens i mean it's it's like the center of commerce with you know one five lane road and the other you know three so to me this would have been the safest gas station you could find in rocky river because it's has the most eyes on it all right good story by john tucker lots of readers sent notes in saying they appreciated it it's on cleveland.com in the plain dealer and this is today in ohio A now-delayed move to regulate landlord-tenant relations raised a question about the role of the Cuyahoga County Council. Is one of its missions to create countywide legislation? Is that what voters intended with county reform more than a decade ago? What do the mayors of the municipalities think about it? Layla, we had a decent analysis of this over the weekend. Yeah, the county's pay-to-stay legislation is really what got us wondering if this if this was what the framers of the county charter had in mind, that the county council would be passing down laws like a city council would, but for the entire county to abide by. It doesn't it doesn't happen often. We saw it with an anti-discrimination law a few years back, and we saw it with the plastic bag ban that took a long time to implement, and then again with the pay to stay. But we wondered if those legislative efforts bothered local leaders or the architects of the charter. Is county council overstepping any authority here? And it turns out, no, actually, it's totally fine. The charter does indeed permit the council to do this. Article 3 of the charter gives council the power to introduce, enact, and amend ordinances and resolutions relating to all matters within the legislative power of the county. 
And the county's legislative power says that they have the authority to exercise, quote, all or any powers vested in municipalities. It's pretty clear. But of course, you know, the constituent communities enjoy the home rule provision of the Ohio Constitution, which gives them the power to opt out of any of these county mandates. And as long as that's the case, local leaders say that they don't seem they don't really have a problem with with the county passing countywide laws. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because we've had a lot of comments about the county council in the past year. They've squandered a lot of money. They were pushing to build a jail on a toxic site. Um, we've, We've been very critical. And so when they did this, it was, are you expanding your role again? And it sounds like the consensus by people who pay attention to these things is this isn't a bad thing. This is this is an okay thing that they're doing. Nobody sees any alarm bells. Here's here's the one thing I'd like to to ask though. With county government broken, with the jail a disaster, with funding for the justice center that's much needed in jail not in place, is it really a good idea for the county to be expanding its sphere like this when it can't do the basic services that it's charged with? Well, I think that they would say county, you know, government can do more than one thing at once. But also, you know, some of these things, eh, to me, I feel like it begs the question, what's the point of doing it at all? I mean, council uh, first used its power to establish that countywide law in 2018 with the the anti-discrimination piece that was amended last year to include, you know, discrimination based on a person's reproductive health decisions. But in five years, you know, that commission has heard maybe half a dozen cases. And, you know, the housing law is a little moot because it already exists in the communities where it would make a difference. And the plastic bag ban has been so neutered by the state's threat of banning bag bans altogether. And and the prerogative of many cities that have opted out, that it's basically become more of a suggestion to stop using plastic bags than an actual ban. So so the countywide laws tend to be more symbolic than anything else. It's like a representation of the values of county leadership is a statement that, you know, we as a county value the environment over the convenience of plastic bags. So I feel like, you know, it's not that much, it's not hard work to enforce them because they're well, kind of meaningless. <laughs> they, they, uh, yeah, they don't enforce the bag ban because they know if they start, the legislature would pos- probably pass a law banning them. It, it's that law did sunset, so the bag ban is in place, but it's not enforced. Well, the bag ban, the bag ban is turned into more of like an incentive program right. or something. They're just trying to encourage people, encourage you know communities oh. to embrace this this mindset. So I don't think as long as enforcement is not really on the shoulders of the county. It's not that big of a burden for the county to take on this this role. Well, then why, if you don't have enforcement, why pass a law? It, Symbolic. Yeah, I you guess. know, like it's, you know, they're making the statement, for instance, with pay to stay, that the county stands in solidarity with tenants who deserve a chance to stay in their homes. It sort of casts that countywide, um, you know, notion out there. Yeah, because they really need this in places like Chagrin Falls and. Yeah, I mean, all this, and that they intentionally waited to put that on the books until all of the cities that where it really mattered, where they have large tenant populations, they had already passed it. I mean, the sponsors of this countywide piece were waiting so that it wouldn't overly burden those communities, and it just became a symbolic gesture. 
Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, what is Ohio's unemployment rate these days? For February, the unemployment rate was 3.9% in Ohio. That's down from 4% in January. They, we added 900 jobs in February, but don't forget that unemployment figures are always adjusted and usually go up or down after the preliminary report. So Ohio, in the past year, we've added about 7,000 jobs a month. So 900 jobs for February doesn't sound great, but uh, they revised the January figures and found that in January of this year, almost 20,000 jobs were created. And so they think that February's lowers numbers could be up, you know, due to the above average January numbers. But Ohio is so much closer to its post-pandemic job recovery. 96% of the 884,000 jobs lost during the pandemic have now been recovered in Ohio. So we're basically back to, to where we were. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The semi-annual report by the team monitoring the Cleveland Police Consent Decree criticizes the handling of two cases, which seem fairly tame. What are the cases, Laura, and is the low-grade fever of these cases a sign that the consent decree is working? Well, I guess it's good news that they have only two cases and they're talking about very specific instances instead of the police department as a whole and systemic problems. But they're talking about a police officer shooting by her partner and the reinstatement of an officer who lied about being drunk when he crashed his car into a bus while off duty. So both of those seem pretty awful. But we're talking about the team that oversees the Cleveland police reform under the agreement between the U.S. Department of Justice and the city that was signed over unconstitutional policing in the city. And the problems they point out with are not necessarily the cases themselves because they can't control misbehavior, but with the Office of Professional Standards, which investigates civilian complaints, and the Civilian Police Review Board, which recommends the discipline based on investigations. So I know we've talked about this first one before on the podcast. Officer Jennifer Kilnap was shot in July 2020 when responding to a call with her partner and trainee, Bailey Gannon. And she got shot. And the department originally blamed the man they were there for for the 911 call. But it turns out it was her partner and not the man in the bathroom. And they never said it until after he was sentenced. Um, Gannon, the guy who shot, was never disciplined. And Kilnap was suspended one day without pay for failing to turn on her body camera during the incident. So she ended up suing police officials, accused them of lying, and But the force review board from the police department found the shooting did not violate any police policies. And that's where the police commission is now saying that was not a good decision. Yeah. I, I, th- th- look, they're both cases that, that merit discussion. But given what this board was saying three years ago and four years ago about problems in the police department, this seems like a sign that things are getting getting it together that if if this is all they have to criticize uh in the last six months that's that's a good sign right yeah i would agree with that i still think these cases are pretty egregious but yes they are specific cases and they're arguing that they weren't handled correctly they're not saying that all of the police department is in shambles so i guess we should take that as a as a vote of confidence Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That wraps up Monday's episode. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.